Hi, my name is Nate Bloom. I'm the executive director of the Nebraska Grain Sorghum Board and the Nebraska Sorghum Producers Association. I work for farmers who are growing a crop that is a healthy option for people, animals, and the planet. As a part of my job, I get to talk with some super interesting people who are doing some super interesting things on a regular basis. I learned so much from these conversations, and I thought you might enjoy them as well. Welcome to this episode of Sergeant Sorghum and his amazing friends. Well, hi, and welcome everybody this week to uh, this episode of Sergeant Sorghum and his amazing friends. Today, I'm really excited to share with you a conversation with uh, with my friend, um, one of the one of my favorite people that I've gotten to get to know a little bit virtually here in the last year or so. Um, you know, she's a researcher, she's an entrepreneur, um, and frankly, she's a really strong woman. And uh, I'm I'm really excited, glad to call uh, Miss Sujala Balaji, a friend of mine. And Sujala, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I love saying your name. It's such a beautiful name. Thanks, Nate. Uh, I don't know if I've ever shared the meaning of my name with you. It means oh. uh, it means pure water in Sanskrit. Really? No, yes. I didn't know that. Yes. And thanks wow. for spelling it right. <laughs> yeah, well, I absolutely love it. It's a beautiful name. So, um, Sujala, you're up in uh, in Canada, right? You're in Toronto, Ontario. Is that right? That's correct. So tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, yeah. So I'm currently sitting in uh, cloudy Toronto here, looking out the window, wishing for more sun. But uh, I, I originally grew up in India. That's where I was born and raised. Uh, did all my schooling, went to uh, an agricultural university to do my undergraduate degree in food engineering. And uh, worked there for a couple of years before moving to Canada to pursue grad studies. And uh, I went to University of Manitoba uh, in Winnipeg, of all places in Canada. And uh, that allowed me to gain a lot of experience into the Canadian uh, food and ag ecosystem. And eventually worked for a startup that was uh, manufacturing uh, uh, flax oil at a commercial scale. And uh, my role was R&D, but uh, uh, working at a startup, you are not defined by your title. I was able to gain a wide variety of experience ranging from uh, R&D to QA to operations to supply chain and uh, eventually moved to Ontario. And uh, I started working for a large dairy company for about seven years. Uh, my role was cross-functional in a sense that even though I was part of an, uh, an operations team, I was able to collaborate with various departments within the organization, and it's a multinational company. So I was able to work on product launches, uh, new product uh, commercialization, project extensions, uh, continuous improvement type of uh, projects, uh, working with marketing, sales, R&D, operations, QA. So I can confidently say that I have seen it all in the, the food industry at both a startup level and a large scale manufacturing level. Uh, eventually, I, uh, I found working for a corporate company uh, to be a little more, what is the word, um, unfulfilling in terms of uh, the type of impact I wanted to make with my career and uh, life. So that led me to pursue the entrepreneurial journey and uh, started uh, my first startup, Kosher Foods. I know we will get into millets and sorghum uh, as we start talking more, but uh, I'm happy to shine more light on that if you want me to right now, or we can talk about that later. Well, let's jump into that a little bit later. And I just have to say, just for everybody at home, if you saw me kind of face earlier, I'm doing yeah. this, uh, this podcast today outside at, at our home, and I got stung by a wasp right as you started talking. I said, gosh, what is that? And there's a wasp on my arm. But you still have a good straight face, so you must have a lot of pain tolerance. We towered right through it. There you go. So. Thank goodness for the great outdoors. Right. And that's what Nebraska and Sorghum Army does to you, I guess, right? Right, right. We're tough at the Sorghum yeah. Army. Gosh, jeez. Well, I def definitely want to talk more about your experience working uh -huh. in space and what you're doing with kosher foods and then rain-fed foods and some of the organizations you're a part of. Mm -hmm. um, 
But before we get into that a little bit, uh, I wonder if you might just uh, be kind enough to share a little bit about your background. How did you get to Canada? You know, where did you grow up? What did that look like? And what's that? How has that cultural experience shaped how you approach things now? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, good question. Because I think growing up in India is part of uh, who I am today and uh, what I'm doing. Uh, I I grew up very close to uh, close to. Uh, food and egg was part of uh, my upbringing. My grandparents were farmers. Um, I I remember this very you know very brief flash memory of my dad having a cow when I was a little kid and uh, milking the cow and uh, and my grandfather had a cow too. So that's part of my childhood and how I was raised until we moved to a larger town and then you know things change. But it's uh, it's much different from. For example, my daughter, who's growing up in Canada, she has no clue where the closest farm is. I mean, except for the time comes when we go blueberry picking and apple picking. So, uh, and even shopping for food, there was just, there was no big box stores. Again, that has changed in the last two decades. Everything, you just uh, buy fruits and vegetables from a street vendor pretty much every morning. That's how my mom would get her produce every day and cook from scratch. He, like the first time I heard cooking from scratch was when I first moved to North America because cooking from scratch is the normal way of cooking <laughs> back in India. It's just the uh, way you cook, right? Right, yeah. exactly. It's no exactly. scratch, it's just cooking. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> Um, so all of that really infused in me, not just uh, culturally how we see food uh, and how food grows, but I also happened to go to the agricultural university to do my undergrad. Uh, again, going to classes every morning, passing through green grass fields where students are actually, uh, so agriculture university had a lot of different programs, everything from plant breeding to plant biology, to biochemistry, to animal husbandry. So I, it's a massive uh, university and uh, you can't escape being immersed in agriculture day in and day out. So I did that for four years. So I feel like subconsciously, it's all been part of uh, my journey towards where I am today. And uh, it's really, it really hit me when I moved to Canada and uh, started to notice how one isolated we are from uh, just the whole agriculture. And when, when you say, uh, you know, plants and agriculture and soil, like in Canada, at least we immediately think of prairies because that's where a lot of food grows and especially wheat. Uh, Canada has an amazing infrastructure when it comes to growing wheat and pulses, but uh, ask people to name the top 10 crops that grow in Canada. Other than wheat, soy and corn, we're not going to be able to like come up with names very quickly. Again, it just shows to how uh, we're, we're here, we're influenced by monocropping in agriculture and uh, how we lack biodiversity and whether what we grow or what we eat. Uh, so there, there is a little bit of the story as to how culturally um, these experiences have shaped my uh, experience and uh, work in the, the food space. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that uh, monocropping, um, it's that's, a, that's an issue for us down here in the United States, too. And one thing maybe viewers at home don't recognize, uh, maybe they haven't heard me say it enough, but I say it often. Um, you know, our farmers are growing more than one crop. And so in sorghum, you know, my job is obviously to promote sorghum, uh, to build markets for sorghum, to provide that education, um, and to make the, you know, the, to pr provide more value um, to the sorghum farmer and to the industry. But that being said, um, you know, I don't want every farmer just growing sorghum either, right? No, no more than farmers just growing uh, corn and soybean rotation, uh, right. because that's not really a true rotation in the sense of biodiversity and soil health, um, and even water conservation and, and wildlife and land stewardship. Um, exactly. More than that. Right. Right. Um, you know, that's not to uh, throw the farmers under the bus. I mean, for a long time. Uh, where they've been able to realize those profits have been in crops like corn and soybeans. Mm -hmm. Markets for sorghum and other crops haven't been as great. Absolutely. Uh, now we're seeing that change a little bit in the food space in particular, and that's kind of the crux of our conversation. 
right. uh, later. But, uh, you know, I just want folks to know it's not a competition. And I'll have folks come up to me if all farmers and other people come up to me at, at events like the state fair and things like that. And they'll say, oh, well, you're the competitor to corn. And that's actually not true. We were competitors. We actually work together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other commodity groups in Nebraska, we do a good job of working together because all of us directors, whether it's wheat or beans or soybeans uh, or, uh, or corn, um, you know, we all recognize that we're taxpayer funded. And if we're going to work for our farmers who are paying those taxes and they're growing more than one thing, we better be working together. Right. Right. Agriculture is just not big enough to think of it competitively. In a- no, no. Yeah. No. Collaboration over competition is uh, is the you know uh, is the the uh, future forward approach. I guess. Again, going back to your point on like it's not necessarily to say that the wheat farmers and the soy farmers are bad and that we don't need wheat or soy. Yes, we need all of those crops, but we just need more than three crops growing. Uh, there, there have been incentives for farmers to grow, so, grow those crops, uh, whether in the form of subsidies or whether demand from markets. So if you go and ask a farmer to grow sorghum, they're gonna ask, where is the demand? Show me that there is a market for it, right? So if there is a demand in terms of what we consume and what we put into our diets. So then eventually farmers will acknowledge that and start growing more crops. And it's all actually beneficial for farmers to rotate the crops too, because it provides for better soil health, uh, better water uh, absorption rates and better nitrogen fixation by growing diverse crops. So there is, be- there is actual benefits to growing diverse crops as well. Um, yeah. You're exactly right. And and I, I think that, and that's what I heard you say too, is not that it's, again, it's not a competition. Right. Uh, it's, it's how can we work together. And it's, it's amazing what we can achieve when we stop thinking about what we individually or we as an individual industry can, can achieve. When we start thinking about broader, what can we all achieve? How can we all win? Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Now, we live in the United States and Canada too. Uh, we live in very competitive societies. I mean, our our uh, cultures revolve around things like sports where you pit one team against another. Our legal systems are, uh, are competitive even, you know, where, where it's, uh, you know, who could win in the courtroom, so to speak. Uh, right. it's, it's really, uh, I don't want to say it's, it's understandable for folks to think in those terms, but the reality is that when it comes to something as big as agriculture, as big as sustaining our environment, as big as making sure that rural communities and farms are economically healthy as well. Um, and, and that people are, are not going hungry. Um, right. It's too big to think of them in, in those uh, competitive terms, although that might be more accessible to a lot of folks. Exactly. And that reminds me of the, the initiative from the UN a few years ago, which was a somewhat of a driver for my entrepreneurial journey as well. It's the declaration of the sustainable development goals, the 17 goals, the, you know, whether zero hunger, poverty, climate change, uh, global partnerships, uh, sustainable production and consumption. So all of these require cooperation and collaboration with one another and a holistic approach to thinking, how can we solve those, solve those problems? And I think the SDGs provide a good framework for people that are not necessarily thinking on, you know, how can we work together in addressing these huge problems that exist, not just in one country, just globally, right? So that, um, again, just emphasizes how we need to work together, uh, whether it's across geographies or across different uh, stakeholders to create solutions in the future. It's funny you should mention the UN. Um, I get involved in a lot of different things, which is really a blessing, but sometimes it's kind of uh, hard to keep up with how I've gotten involved in them. Uh, And the last few weeks, uh, maybe the last two months or so, uh, I've gotten involved uh, on a subcommittee, actually two subcommittees uh, that are helping to inform the UN Food Systems Summit, which will take place in New York uh, this fall, mm-hmm. tentatively for September 13th. Mm-hmm. Um, what's really interesting about that is that the UN Secretary General, uh, you know, looking ahead to the 2030 agenda, really wants to make agriculture and climate the focus for the next uh, decade. Uh, moving forward for UN policy. And so it's really important for us to be involved in that from Nebraska's standpoint, 
um, because we're at the table with folks from from Africa and Southeast Asia and Europe and other places. And you know, there there's um, there's a difference in ideology in some of these places, in particular around technology and agriculture. Uh, so, for example, uh, we know from a consumer standpoint that there's an incredible demand for uh, for non-GMO foods. Mm -hmm. um, I believe, and the science that I believe shows uh, that GMOs are, are safe, largely. Okay, I mean, in fact, I tell people you've had GMOs since uh, Gregory Mendel started playing with peas. Yeah, I think uh, most scientists would agree with you. Right. <laughs> But the reality is that there are still consumers that want non-GMO regardless of that. And what, how that works great for sorghum is we have a non-GMO product, right? So right. we can help fill that niche. But right. agriculture tends to fall into though, is we tend to tell consumers why they're wrong and why they should want something else. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing as like going to your local pizza place and saying you want a pepperoni pizza and they say, no, no, you're wrong. You shouldn't want pepperoni. Here's why you should want sausage instead. Just sell them the pepperoni pizza, right? right. And kind of the same thing in ag. If you've got a product that meets their demand, whether whether they're necessarily informed on what GMO means or not, uh, you know, there's no sense in arguing. Just give them, give them what they want. And that's where agriculture is a bigger sandbox that can fill all those demands. Exactly. The non-GMO market and like the gluten-free market they're projected to grow by like uh, anywhere between 9% and 13% compounded year over year. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. And I, I think that's where sorghum. And so when I, just for the context of our call today, I want to um, emphasize that when, when we say sorghum, millets are part of the family too. So millets are classified into two groups, minor millets and major millets. And sorghum is part of a major millet. So every time I say sorghum, Let's just say, let's just pretend that I'm talking about the whole millet and sorghum. Uh, it's naturally, not only uh, actually non-GMO, but it's hang on, naturally- Hang on, hang on, time out. Okay. I gotta stop you for a second. Okay. So saying, we've got Sergeant Sorghum behind me here. Okay, okay. I'm sorry to offend him. <laughs> no, it's okay. We got Sergeant Sorghum, but we should also have Major Millet. Oh, okay. I like that. I like, I like that. that, I like that, yes. <laughs> yeah, Sergeant Sorghum, or, Major Millet, or, and Joe <laughs> Nate, you should come up with a female, uh, 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 yes, partner for Sergeant Sorghum uh, named Millet. Well, that's great, Sujala. We could, we should design that together. As a matter of, we, okay, we okay. did make um, for our for our children's book, which is available okay. on the website uh, Nebraska.org. Oh, nice. Okay, we a kid version of mm -hmm. of made of uh, Sergeant Sergeant Sorghum. Mm -hmm. and called him uh, Milo. His name's Milo. Uh, oh, okay. So okay. we could definitely expand the family, but um, I would encourage you to, you know, send me your ideas as what okay. she could look like. That'd be great. Okay. It sounds great. I'm up for the challenge. I'll pass it along to my 12-year-old. Uh, <laughs> That's where the great ideas come. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. Sorry, I interrupted you. but yeah, No worries. Um, our viewers that they would get bad jokes and references throughout these podcasts. So I feel like I have a mandate that right. I have. Bill. So sorry, but go ahead. No, that's good. That keeps the conversation uh, entertained, right? Um, <laughs> right? So where was I? Yes, um, sorghum being not only is it just grown genetically unmodified, but uh, it's naturally organic, naturally gluten-free, naturally low glycemic, meaning that it's good for people that uh, are concerned about diabetes or have diabetes. It's clinically proven to regulate diabetes when you consume it regularly. And your point about uh, gluten-free being, um, being a, uh, a growing trend is, is true. I, so that's how I started Kosher Foods. I, started, I wanted to start a company that produces uh, healthy gluten-free products because a lot of my friends have gluten allergies. And uh, it, it, it's a top eight allergen in North America. It, people either self-diagnose themselves or they have been diagnosed celiac. So it is, uh, and, and what's interesting is that there is an increasing number of people who are feeling like they are intolerant to gluten and avoiding wheat. Um, so on that note, yeah, sorghum is naturally uh, it, it, it naturally meets all of these expectations and needs from a consumer. So what better crop to promote than sorghum, right? And, right. Um, and many varieties too. So 
uh, regardless of color, each of the variety has its own nutritional benefits. So one, for example, is higher in calcium. There is a type of millet that's higher and super high in iron and fiber. And then sorghum is full of antioxidants. So there is incredible benefits to eating these diverse varieties. So it's very underappreciated. That's why I, I love talking to you about uh, all things sorghum. <clears throat> I'm sorry, this is uh, a risk of doing this outside in my neighborhood. I just had a garbage truck going down the street, so I had to mute. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I, I could feel that you were being a little bit distracted, so which is why I paused. <laughs> it's all good. Listen, it doesn't take much to distract me, so if that happens, you're going to be pausing forever. Um, you know, talking about the different uh, nutritional values and different attributes of, of different types of millets and different types of sorghum, one thing that I don't know that you and I've talked about, but mm -hmm. at the University of Nebraska, we have one of six um, food research centers around the world, as I understand it. It's called the uh, Center for Food for Health. Okay. And um, their, their, their job, actually, I misspoke. They're one of six research institutions studying the gut microbiome in the world. That's, that's a better way to say it. And um, they, they love sorghum. And partially because of what it does for the gut microbiome, but they, like some other researchers I've talked to at the Ag Research Service, um, they're convinced that those uh, higher tannin sorghums, even all the way up to the onyx sorghum in particular, have uh, like anti-cancer uh, type, anti-carcinogenic uh, properties. Um, now, of course, the more tannins you have, the more bitter the taste is. Uh, so where an entrepreneur can really hit a home run is if they're finding some way to make an onyx sorghum uh, into a palatable product, uh, you know, then you could market that as a nutraceutical. That's one of many incredible opportunities we have in sorghum. Absolutely. It so is, many uh, market. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, yes. The other thing, not only is it good for people that don't want to, uh, that, that have allergies, but it's actually gut friendly. So it actually improves your gut health. Not, not only does it not do any more damage. So exactly. Uh, and uh, uh, about opportunities that exist for creating different products, whether it's food products or nutraceuticals, it's largely, largely underexplored and untapped. And uh, I feel like that's going to change in the next five years. And uh, that's what you and I are betting on. But the, uh, the, UN has announced 2023 to be the International Year of Millets, right? right? So uh, I know we talked about this a while ago, but uh, it's official. Uh, there is going to be a lot of initiatives coming down the pipeline uh, in the next uh, two years to, to promote uh, millet and sorghum globally. And uh, there's gonna be a lot of initiatives that stem from that. Uh, and uh, I, I feel like consumers will definitely start to hear about sorghum way more than they have in the past 10, 20 years. I think when the UN, uh, and this is a message out there to all the folks associated with the UN who might be watching this, um, you know, when the UN kicks that off in 2023, the International Year of the, mil of the Millet, uh, not the year of the mullet. Now that was 1983 when the Camaro Z3 and everything, but so not the year of the mullet, but the year of the millet, but when, the, when that happens, um, I think Nebraska Sorghum needs to be there in, in New York or wherever it might be to help kick that off. We definitely love to be a resource and, and, and position ourselves uh, mm -hmm. to, to be a, a voice for the industry in that, in that sense. So that's great. Hey, speaking of, let's start getting into some of your work. So you mentioned Kosha Foods and now Rainfed Foods. Right. Uh, tell us a story about your company and, and where you're at now. Right. Uh, with kosher foods, I, as I was mentioning earlier, it really started when I was observing the, the number of different gluten-free products in the market and how there was a growing demand for gluten-free products. Yet, when you look at the products that are out there, they're filled with a lot of additives, empty, empty calories like potato starch, uh, tapioca, uh, tapioca starch or flour. This is what pr pr most of the gluten-free products were primarily made of. And uh, it was not necessarily nutritious. And it was also very expensive. Uh, they're usually two times more expensive than the non-gluten-free products. So 
it felt like I could uh, use millets to create those uh, gluten-free products and still deliver on the taste and nutrition. So that's how that started. And uh, also the, the, the diabetes aspect of it, the, the fact that uh, millets are anti-diabetic or helps with diabetes because um, in India, diabetes is unfortunately a bigger problem than we think it is. And um, obesity uh, due to changes on lifestyle, diseases uh, like diabetes, diabetes and obesity have been uh, just slowly entering the society and just getting bigger and bigger. And uh, same in Canada too, except that we have free uh, uh, universal healthcare here and uh, uh, getting insulin shots is um, not, uh, not that expensive. So it's not as widely spoken as a problem because we're able to manage it here in Canada. Um, so I, yeah, my, my parents were both diagnosed with diabetes and millets came up in the conversation. And India is also the largest producer of millets in the world. Um, I don't know if uh, we might have talked about this when we first connected uh, Green Revolution that happened in uh, late 60s and 70s uh, wiped, pretty much wiped out millet consumption in India. Up until then, millet was a staple. M millets are what people ate instead of rice and wheat. And Green Revolution uh, was started to improve uh, yields and productivity. But now two, three, uh, more than three decades later, we're starting to see the adverse effects of uh, what that did to one soil health and human health. So even in India, there is an increasing push to consume more millets, put millets back in people's plates and uh, farmers to grow more millets. So that that was all coming coming into coming into the picture. And then I was noticing how in North America we have a huge opportunity to address uh, the gluten-free demand and also biodiversity. So it felt like a right uh, crop to introduce and not to mention quinoa was uh, taking off. So that made me realize if people are more open to eating ancient grains and superfoods like quinoa, millets are the same deal. So I started um, experimenting with different millets and created different products. Um, millet porridge actually is a very uh, common breakfast eaten in India, especially in Southern India with finger millets. Uh, it, I would say it's like a healthier version of hot chocolate when you make it. <laughs> uh, it it's, a, it's a powder mixed with uh, water or milk and then boiled and you can consume it either sweet or savory and it looks chocolatey. It has a mild nutty and chocolatey flavor. So it's a, it's a delicious uh, porridge to drink. Um, well, so. and even, even when we, uh, when we cook pearled grain sorghum, like in the instant pot, we'll mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. a whole bunch of it. Um, it takes a little while longer to cook. So we use the instant right. pot for about 15, 20 minutes. Um, and then we'll freeze what we don't use immediately. Mm -hmm. it comes out of there. It mm -hmm. smells like oatmeal. Right. I don't know why there would be any reason that you couldn't just add a little bit of milk and maybe some brown sugar or something. Exactly, exactly. And you would just like that. And, I mean, it's, and it's uh, actually consumed as breakfast. I've come to learn that uh, in Russia and China, it's consumed as a breakfast too. I think in yeah. Russia, it's called uh, kasha. And I can't remember the name in China. And um, one, other, one other product, oh, Germany. Apparently they eat that for breakfast, cooked with apple, ci uh, apple cider, yes. Really? Well, so, yeah. breakfast, I mean, you know, again, with being low on the glycemic index, that also means it takes longer to digest. Right, right. And it keeps you fuller longer. It doesn't give you the sugar rush that you would get from your sugar-loaded cereals, uh, right? So yeah. it's not only, yeah, not only uh, healthy and delicious, but it, uh, yeah, it fills your appetite. Um yeah. So I feel like I've gone off topic. Where were we? <laughs> no, not at all, actually. I mean, yes, kosher really foods. Um, so that's how kosher foods was started. I worked on porridges to baking mixes. It makes the most uh, delicious pancakes and waffles too, uh, not just porridge. Um, so flour in, uh, in those applications, banana bread. Uh, my friends who have gluten-free love, love, love sorghum flour uh, for banana bread. And um, the, the application's endless. And then you can also consume it as a, as a replacement for rice or 
potatoes uh, on the side uh, as a base for soups and stews. Um, so yeah, endless number of applications. I might have gotten a little bit carried away as a food scientist and a product developer, uh, created a ton of different products, but I was selling energy balls for the longest time. Energy balls made with uh, millet flour and uh, other good nutrients uh, just packed into a tiny little uh, ball of uh, nutrition. And I sold that for, I would say, a year or two. But uh, eventually, I was really fascinated by what's happening in the alternative protein world. And uh, just, I have strong experience academically and working in the dairy industry. So wanted to address some of the problems in the industrial meat and dairy production using uh, millet and sorghum. And that's what led me to create RainFed Foods. Um, again, I chose the name RainFed because uh, sorghum is, uh, is a rain-fed crop. It can doesn't need any water, can grow in the driest of uh, weather and uh, very least amount of water. So at RainFed Foods now, we're starting with creating a plant-based alternative to milk, but we're going to expand into different other categories and different other applications where we could use millets and sorghum to replace uh, traditionally, uh, traditionally uh, produced meat and dairy products. You know, this is another one of those kind of hot topic uh, mm -hmm. that really hits home in Nebraska, and I totally get it. You know, Nebraska is a beef state, and we have a strong dairy presence as well. And, you know, those industries, and I understand it, they feel like they're under assault right now um, because of a lot of the policy and things and uh, that's coming out, um, you know, really not just in support of uh, alternative proteins, right. actually like literally attacking, you know, traditional beef uh, production or traditional dairy production. And, you know, there's the pendulum swung too far in one direction. And again, um, agriculture is big enough that there's room for both, but we also have to have our policymakers understand that too, right? Um, you know, cattle production is not the cause of global warming. In fact, the, quite the contrary. Uh, we see more carbon sequestration benefits in, in traditional agriculture um, than we see in just about any other industry. Uh, but there's room for both. And so- we need to take, uh, we need to kind of redefine uh, the conversation so that farmers don't feel like they're being under assault. Um, but also, policymakers are understanding that it's not an either or, but a both and proposition. Um, and that's where the environment wins, and that's where everybody wins. Um, you know, I think that's really important. And again, again, folks at the UN are watching this, or folks at our friends in Washington are watching this. I really hope that that's the takeaway that, that comes from this. Uh, there's room for both. I 100% I hear what you're saying. Um, I, and I also empathize with the, the uh, dairy and um, meat farmers that they feel like they're under assault. Um, I think also the, the, the biggest driver for, for the alternative protein movement is, is how the population is ever, ever growing. I think the big question that kind of set the alternative protein movement on fire is how do we feed 10 billion sustainably by 2050, right? So that's why that, that triggered people to think about how can we keep producing protein in a sustainable way where we can feed the growing population. And just in the last few decades, we have, you know, the, the population number, I don't have the stats in front of me, but we know that it's, it's increased exponentially. Anyway, it's supposed to be what nine billion by 2050, and that, that's. I mean, you and I, you and I are making the same point here, which is, right. you know, you've got a growing population that right. protein um, and decreasing resources, right? Like land and water. We don't have as much water and land that was available like 50 years ago. So we have to think of new and innovative ways to one produce food more efficiently, more sustainably, and reduce food waste. So that's a big topic as well these days. So we have to think at uh, this problem from different angles. And I think alternative protein is one of them. Yeah. And again, solutions happen when everybody feels like their opinions are valued at the table. Right, right. That's the point that I was trying to make is that absolutely there will be a place uh, and there is a place for alternative proteins, just like there is and it always will be 
mm-hmm. so a place for traditional and animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not an either or. And um, when we can come to the table um, with that kind of an understanding about, you know, how do we do what we do, but we do what we do in a more sustainable way while at the same time adding new options um, that are also sustainable uh, and, and provide that protein source to growing right. populations in an affordable way. Oh, that's right. everybody. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why I never use, I don't know, the, the we word, uh, I guess, <laughs> yeah. because it splits the room uh, into two as soon as you bring the, the um, animal welfare. And when you just approach people from that angle, it's, it doesn't serve any good. Uh, which is why I guess environmentalism is at the the forefront of uh, the alternative protein space these days, and and it's in its fair sense. And I I'm I'm not a vegan. Um, <laughs> I don't know how many people will be offended when they hear this, but I tell people that I'm a conscious consumer. So you can't you, you know. Let's take avocados, for example. It's one of my pet peeves. So sorry for bringing this up in an unrelated conversation <laughs> here. But uh, avocados use a lot of water. Like it's, it, and almonds. Almonds have a super high water footprint. But we can't just say, oh, I eat plant-based and eat, I don't know, five avocados every day or consume almonds in all forms, whether, you know, the, the keto diet is just 90% almond flour. So um, again, it, it's, we have to weigh in the, the proper uh, or use pr- legitimate information and understand what is more sustainable and what is not and what are the choices that we're making whether it's driven by uh, is it driven by climate change is it driven by animal welfare is it driven by you wanting to care about both and wanting to have an impact with the type of food choices that you make it is hugely personal and cultural so attacking one group versus the other doesn't do any good um have you, I don't know how big of a reader you are, but are you familiar with the author Jared Diamond? I do not, but uh, I'll, I'm interested to learn. So Jared Diamond, he's best known for, I think, his Pulitzer Prize winning book was Guns, Germs, and Steel. But the okay. first book that I read of his, um, and frankly, it's still my favorite of all the books of his, and I've, I've read several. By the mm-hmm. way, Diamond teaches at Berkeley, and Jared, if uh, Mr. Diamond, if there's any way that we can get you on the podcast, that would, like, be so awesome. I'm kind of a fangirl about, about Jared Diamond's work. Um, but what's cool about uh, the, the first book that I read, it's called Collapse. And what he does is he, he uh, investigates, kind of studies uh, different cultures throughout history, right? That, mm-hmm. it, that faced some sort of um, environmental catastrophe caused by a cultural norm, okay? And how they either adapted to it or didn't adapt to it. So the two best examples would be Easter Island, right? Um, Easter Island culturally, uh, they they needed um, to cut down all their tree or cut down trees in order to make these big uh, moai. I think they're called right. moai. the Easter Island in Chile, right? It's uh, yeah. And it's I, been on my places to visit, destinations to visit. I've been very fascinated by the history of Easter Island. Well, we can go together because it's on my list. Too. Right. Sounds great. Uh, but, but in order to build these moai and move them from one place to another, they ended up cutting down all their trees. And by the time they you know, realized that their, that cultural norm was destroying their environment, it was too late. The society collapsed. And you contrast that with uh, Vikings in Greenland, uh, where hogs were a big part of their culture uh, when they colonized Greenland. But the hogs were destroying the environment, and they recognized that that's not sustainable. And so they had to change their cultural norm and move to sheep production instead. And that's how they were able to thrive. So he takes these studies and then he steps back and looks at the entire uh, globe, the world, uh, and imagines it as an island, which in a sense it, we are, right? And you know, how do we challenge those cultural norms in the face of what looks like might not be environmentally sustainable so that we can all survive? And I think that's the, the kind of notion that, that most people, whether they realize or not, when they're talking about sustainability and what that means, um, really what we're talking about is how do we change some of those cultural norms, whether it's you know, a culture around mono cropping systems uh, to include additional systems, whether it's a culture around uh, we eat these types of foods because this is what's been available and it's fast and it's convenient 
and that's the way it's been for 30 or 40 years. Um, you know, those are the kind of things that we have to adapt and change in order to uh, to make sure that we don't become another Easter Island in mass. Right. right. Uh, it's a really interesting book. And again, if you get a chance to read Collapse, I highly uh, recommend it. All of Jared Diamond's work is really very interesting. And again, Mr. Diamond, I know you're a very busy guy, but we'd love to have you on. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I will definitely put that on my list of uh, books to read. Yep. Thank you. Well, so we've, we've got about uh, maybe 10, 15 more minutes here, Sujala. And I really want to get into, um, you know, like you talked about rain-fed foods. Talk about some of the international organizations that you're a part of and why those are important. Right. Um, I think we actually, you and I connected uh, uh, thanks to our mutual uh, contact at uh, Thought for Food. So Thought for Food is uh, one of the organizations that I've been a huge fan of ever since I heard about them from day one. Uh, it is a, the best way to describe Thought for Food is a next gen think tank where they bring together a community of like-minded people who all are looking to solve some of the biggest problems in the world of food and agriculture. It's a community, it's a digital, uh, a digital accelerator, a place for people to create companies and they provide mentorship and resources and uh, different programming to support those uh, cross-cultural collaboration. Um, and they, they also have a international event that happens every year. Last year, we were supposed to have this uh, summit in Malaysia and uh, uh, in end of March or early April. And, um, you know, the rest, uh, yeah, I don't need to. Right, right. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent organization led by a visionary, uh, Christine Gould. Uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, her work and uh, how, uh, what she has done to bring people together from across the world. So I feel like if there, is, if there is somebody that's listening that wants to get involved in food and egg, do not know where to start, that's an excellent place to go. Or if you are already working in the food industry, want to work with other people uh, in creating impact and uh, creating meaningful, uh, meaningful work in food and agriculture, that's also uh, an opportunity to tap into. So that's Thought for Food. And then uh, um, with regards to Millet and Sorghum, there is a uh, international campaign started by the International Crop Research Institute for Semi-Arid Tropics. I said the full acronym. It's in short, it's called uh, ICRISAT. And uh, ICRISAT is, um, is part of, uh, uh, part of uh, or responsible for creating uh, or advocating for this UN's International Year of Millet. Because as a crop research organization, they understood the potential millet and sorghum can have in, um, in future whether it's addressing uh, water scarcity or um, depleting soil resources. So smartfood.org is a website that uh, people can check out to find out more about this initiative. And ICRISAT, if you just Google I-C-R-I-S-A-T, it will come up on your front, uh, front, uh, front page on the search. So that's one. And um, with regards to alternative proteins, there are a ton of... Um, ton of resources uh, out there, but a couple of organizations doing really good work is, uh, one is Good Food Institute uh, with, uh, um, with their headquarters in uh, San Francisco or California. They are one of the, I would say, OGs in uh, alternative protein movement. Uh, they have incredible resources. They organize events and um, uh, bring people together. They have a database of uh, people working in the industry. So it's easy to find, um, find people and resources through the Good Food Institute. And there is uh, Protein Directory, which is again, a community of people working towards uh, the, the future of proteins. And, uh, or just LinkedIn, uh, just con connect with people like you and I. And um, I'm happy to share resources. Uh, depending on what, what one's looking for, but- the, You just call them the OG. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of creating an organization for- um, The millets and sorghum were so cool, yo. 
Yes. <laughs> we are. We are. Yeah, I know. I keep telling people how cool I am, but nobody believes me. Uh, yeah. Wait, you wait until 2023. Then people will really get you. <laughs> how do people get a hold of you if they want to? Right. Uh, a good place is LinkedIn. Uh, there is uh, fortunately not a lot of Sujala Balajis. It's a fairly uncommon name, even in India. Uh, so that's that's one way. Or I'm also on Instagram um, under so sorry, so underscore Sujala. So Sujala, both Instagram and Twitter. Less active on Twitter, but uh, yeah, LinkedIn for sure. Or email. You know, and talking about the food space um, in particular, I always want to throw this out there because this is the primary focus for Nebraska sorghum. Um, we love the international markets. Don't get me wrong. China buys a lot of sorghum. In fact, they bought like 82% of the 2020 crop and uh, they're already looking at uh, the 2021 crop. That's mm -hmm. But what that does is it creates a lot of market risk uh, for farmers because if China stops buying, which has happened in the past, mm -hmm. we'll have a problem. At the same time, we see a lot of opportunity here in the domestic markets for sorghum-based food products in particular. And uh, what we've been doing really, uh, really, I think a pretty good job at actually, is reaching out to not only uh, entrepreneurs, but existing businesses and telling the story of Nebraska and why they should locate their business here. Um, you know, from a standpoint of uh, being proximate to the crop that's being grown so you can decrease your supply lines uh, to having a more favorable tax climate than in other states, and even to having uh, you know the infrastructure where you're just about the center of the country and about two days by truck from anywhere in the United States uh, continentally. Um, it makes a lot of sense to locate businesses in Nebraska. And what we'd like to do, uh, because I can't move those ports for international trade any closer to Nebraska, what we're trying to do is make Nebraska a hub for the domestic market and the North American market for value-added products, not just in food space, but also industrial uses like bioplastics as well. Um, so if you're watching this and you're a business and you're thinking, hey, maybe you know we should be looking at uh, somewhere else we want to locate or maybe just to expand, um, you know, we're here. And I'll, I'll tell you one thing we're working on right now, we have two different companies and I can't say who they are yet, uh, but one's located on the East Coast and one's on the West Coast, uh, both in the food space. And we've been having conversations with them about moving their operations here to Nebraska. Um, and we're able to partner with the Nebraska Department of Economic Development and local uh, economic developers to help figure out what those incentives are and what the best sites are. And we're hoping to have a new uh, milling facility in Nebraska um, by the end of 2020, uh, which will be huge. Um, but we don't want to stop there. Um, we have an opportunity for a bioplastics operation um, in Kearney, Nebraska as well. We're working with a uh, uh, New Zealand company called Xylotech um, on how do we get the right investor to finish that plant that's already been started um, with product that they already know they have demand for, but we need investment um, and a partner to help finish it uh, and get it off the ground. Um, that's the kind of work that we're doing here in Nebraska, and there's plenty of opportunity. And you and I actually originally connected Sujala via our Catalyst program. Uh, Catalyst was an opportunity for uh, entrepreneurs, teams of entrepreneurs at the University of Nebraska and Concordia University in Seward, Nebraska, to create new products based in sorghum uh, that these students would eventually transition into businesses. Now, we finished our first year with that. And we're looking now at uh, the 2020, 2021 school year, um, but that's not limited just to college students. And we're also looking to expand that uh, to other post-secondary institutions as well. And we learned a lot the first year about how we can best support these students um, and how we can connect them with investors when they're ready to begin their business. And so that's something that we continue to focus on as well. Um, you know, checkoffs are always, uh, you know, really have three legs to the stool as to far as far as why we function the way we do. Uh, one is to support research. One is to provide consumer and producer education. And the third is markets development. And here in Nebraska, we've really taken that markets development to heart um, because we recognize that there is a need and there's a vacuum um, uh, in the sense of providing gluten-free, non-GMO, healthy food options in the domestic market. There's a lot of value there. It's an exciting time to work in millets and sorghum. And that's, I think, why you and I have connected. There's, it's going to be a fun decade ahead. Absolutely, 100%. I, I really, uh, 
can't wait to meet in person one day and uh, visit uh, Sorghum Fields in Nebraska. I hope uh, the day comes soon enough. Well, Sujala, we want to have you in Nebraska so badly. Uh, I want to meet you. In Honestly, if 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 the weather is not that cold as it gets in Nebraska, I don't think I would hesitate moving. That's really what's. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, to be yeah. fair, it, it's only really cold uh, anymore for a few months. Like, you know, December, January, and February, those are your coldest months. But you get past that and then you're, you're okay. Uh, okay. Now, I mean, it's not even May. It's the last day of April and I'm sitting outside. It's got to be close to 80 degrees, if not warmer. Okay. Uh, the okay. top down on the Camaro for all but maybe three weeks in the last okay. month. Or in the last, sorry, <laughs> in the last uh, three months, I should say. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. You know, so we'd, we'd love to have you anytime. Awesome. Can I ask you a last question? Yeah, go ahead. What is your favorite way to consume sorghum? Um, I like popped sorghum. Mm. Um, I do a lot with sorghum flour, but my very favorite way to consume sorghum is I have a recipe for a Cajun bowl, like a jambalaya, that I use pearled grain sorghum in. I make it at the state fair every year. It's, uh, it's the best. Of course, I like spicy food, so I make it nice and spicy. <laughs> Amazing. Sounds delicious. It is. It really is. So, yeah. but hey, thanks for your time. I, you Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, pleasure uh, speaking with you again, uh, Nate. I hugely appreciate and admire all you're doing at Nebraska. And just generally speaking, what you're doing to promote sorghum uh, in, in the U.S. So glad to connect. Well, thank you, Sujala. There's natural synergies between what we're doing, and I'm I'm blessed to count you as a friend. Um, before we end, I always oh, then there goes Sergeant Sorghum right now. It says time's up. <laughs> right on cue. Okay. Well, uh, before we end, I always want to put a shout out to uh, my favorite Spider-Man uh, comic book artist of all time, Mr. Mark Bagley. Uh, Mr. Bagley, uh, you're one of my heroes. And if we could ever compel you to do a, a, a mock comic book cover uh, with Sergeant Sorghum, uh, we would absolutely, uh, we would love it and we'd love to have you on the show. So that's Sujala. I know that's totally not germane to our conversation, um, but that is like one of the themes for all of our episodes. Because I'm not going to stop till we get Mark Bagley on the show. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, maybe he's watching. Maybe someone will forward this to him. Let's well, I hope they do. Yeah, let's root for that. <laughs> good. Have All a right. great day. Hey, thank you so much, Suzala. Bye, Nate. Bye.